Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Send your spirit into our hearts and guide us in your ways, that our ambition may be to please you in this body or out of this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. As we in the United States are trying to reflect and trying to make sense of our historic moment this past week and the whirlwind of the presidential election, it's very difficult, yet I think it's vitally important for us to have a broader context, a wider perspective to understand what God is doing in the world and how he is working in our world today. For with a broader perspective, we are able to get the strength and the vision to move ahead as we as a community consider these unsettled times. Such a broader perspective gives us something to carry out our hopes for the years ahead. But where do we find such a broader perspective? Where can we look? Maybe to Western Christendom, that period in world history where law and politics, economics and culture were bundled together and informed one another. But that ship has sailed. It's a new day. Perhaps we could look to the modern progress narrative that idea that if only countries would embrace democracy, human rights, equality, ecology, then the world would be a better place. An attractive and a noble idea, and yet not perfect. Its institutions decay, and even at its best, its accomplishments are limited. I offer the biblical narrative as a sustainable and enduring, life-giving narrative with which to see our world and our context today. It starts off, in the beginning, God. And the final sentence is, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hero is God, reconciling in Christ the world to himself. God is the hero. He began this work. He continues this work and he will complete it. Primarily, this narrative is not about you. It didn't begin when you were born, and it won't end when you die. It precedes the Western Christendom narrative, and it will outlive the modern progress narrative. It's fundamentally about God reconciling the world to himself in Christ. This God who stops at nothing, to cross cultural and economic and social boundaries and geographical boundaries, to call peoples to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be in his place under his blessing in his time. I think of the pandemic. Yes, a pandemic that we are enduring currently, but also the pandemic in 1918. No one would have blamed a church in Philadelphia, Faith Tabernacle Church, if during the pandemic back then they closed their doors, they looked inward, became self-absorbed. No one would have blamed them for hunkering down. 
After all, nine million people had just been killed in World War I, and 50 million people died in the pandemic. Who would have blamed them? And yet this congregation responded in the only way they knew, prevailing prayer. The entire congregation sought the face of God, pouring out their soul to God, and God in his mercy revealed to them a burden for Africa, particularly West Africa. And so as the church was praying, they began to write letters, personal letters, to men and women from the Ivory Coast all the way down to Nigeria. And by 1926, 10,000 people had come to know Christ. There were 250 meeting points. This church had got it. They had grasped that they were part of something greater than their own trauma, something bigger than their own cyclone, something that God was doing in their day, and they were a part of what God was doing. It is this impulse of this narrative that drove and inspired the, the Apostle Paul, this chauvinistic, elitist Jew conditioned by his own cultural blinders and yet broken free by that experience on the Damascus Road such that he would even contemplate crossing the boundaries to those who were unclean, to Greeks. As a kosher Jew, it's remarkable. He had rights, as we heard, this letter to the Corinthians, to a pagan city, to a sensuous and promiscuous and idolatrous and polytheistic city that he would write to them with such affection, with such tenderness. And yet how they had treated him, repudiating his authority, rejecting his teaching, living just as they please, following the super apostles and denying his apostolic authority. And yet Paul writes in the beginning of 2 Corinthians that the God of compassion the Father of all comfort comforts us, comforts you in all your affliction. Isn't that a word for us today? Comforts you in all your affliction. Put it on your refrigerator, on your phone, write it in your heart. He comforts you. And Paul writes out of this tenderness and affection for a congregation that had dismissed him. And he provides in our passage today some principles, some underlying motives for his own mission. So I'd like us to look at our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at three motivations that Paul gives. First of all, hope. He says in verse 1, now we know if the, this tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. The Greeks looked negatively at the body. It was a tomb. It was a prison that the divine spark had to be released from. Similar, perhaps, to parts of India or South Asia where the body is regarded negatively and needs to be liberated. But for the Greeks, it was towards the immortality of the soul. Paul did not share that attitude to the body. Yes, it was like a tent, Picture a tent in your backyard, something that could be blown over by a, a strong wind. And yet Paul says, we have a tent, but we're looking forward to a building from God, built without human hands, a permanent residence, this 
resurrection body, that his hope was not so much to escape from the body, but to replace the physical body with a resurrection body. And in verse 2, we read, we, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Paul was realistic about the current experience, groaning, created in time and yet designed for eternity. Paul recognized this inbuilt tension, this unresolved conflict, if you will. And then in verse 5, he says, for God made us for this purpose. He designed the intricateness and the sophistication of the human being, of the soul, of the life of each person from every culture, and inbuilt eternity in their hearts is this unresolved tension. And then God in his mercy offers the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. For Paul, this was so real, this hope of the resurrection. It was so compelling in his life. He says in the following verses that, therefore, we would prefer to be away from the body and with the Lord. He would prefer. He had reached that point on his spiritual earthly pilgrimage that he would prefer to be away from the body and with Christ. So strong, so deep was this conviction that he had this hope that propelled him, not in indifference to the world, but to act. I recently learned of the, a similar hope with George Liley. George Liley was inspired by this hope of the resurrection, not someone that is very well known in American churches, not someone that books are written about, but George Liley was a formerly enslaved African-American from Georgia, born in 1750, died in 1820. He was considered in many ways the first missionary from North America to leave these shores. He pioneered a missionary movement in Jamaica. Few know of the suffering that he endured, his poverty, his incarceration for over two years. Few know that when he died, over 20,000 people had been baptized. Churches and schools had been found for free blacks. A few know of his colleague, David George, a pastor from Georgia who relocated as a black loyalist from USA to Canada, to Nova Scotia. And then in 1792, David George, as the leader of his congregation, much in the way that we might say that Mark Booker is the leader of Park Street Church, the entire church in 1792 gets on a ship from Canada all the way to West Africa. And in 1792, as they arrive and put harbor, put anchor out in the harbor of Freetown, they sing a hymn by Isaac Watts. This is a congregation good to go in mission. It was so inspiring to William Wilberforce that he said, Sierra Leone is the morning star of Africa. It was the first Protestant church founded in tropical Africa. This was African-American initiated mission decades before the Anglos arrived with their Protestant societies. And what I take from this was a holistic vision. David George was motivated by the hope of the resurrection to act in the present. It was a Jesus-focused vision of providing an economics which was just and fair, of cultural and social values that would ennoble and dignify their community. It was hope, hope in the resurrection that motivated them now. Paul also is inspired 
by fear. Verses 10 to 13, he says, so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive in his body the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Since therefore we know the fear of God, we try to persuade men. If you were in Corinth 2,000 years ago, you would know the judge's bench, the place where the governor of the city would sit and those who'd been accused would either be acquitted or condemned. And Paul uses this physical monument, if you will, in the city to remind them of a greater judgment, of the true judge, of the tribunal at which everything about everybody, Jews, Greeks, Romans, the entire ancient world, would be revealed before the eyes of a holy God. And in many ways, Paul is calling them to beware of presumption and of entitlement, of arrogance, that they are to submit before the eyes of a holy God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul uses this phrase, the fear of God. It's a phrase that we may be familiar about from the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the opposite of the fear of the Lord is to be a fool. Someone who, though they may be intelligent, they may be very smart, yet they're not willing to learn. They're not willing to discipline and subordinate themselves unto Yahweh himself. The fear of the Lord is also used in the prophetic literature. Think of Amos 3.8, where the lion roars, who will not fear? When Almighty God speaks, it creates this, this sense of awe and wonder at God. It withdraws people closer to him with rapt attention. They sit up, they pay attention to, with respect to what Yahweh himself is going to say. It draws them in. And yet at other times, the fear of the Lord leads God's people to withdraw, to recoil from him. In the law, for example, in Exodus 20, 18 to 20, we see the people of Israel on the mountain, they fear and they tremble, they withdraw. And Moses says, don't be afraid. The Lord has come to test you, to see if the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. The fear of the Lord, it leads those to recoil, it leads some to draw near. The root is the same in the original language. The fear of the Lord is the proper response for all humanity before their creator, before their redeemer. And it drives Paul to persuade, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of manipulation, out of coercion. One thinks of the Spanish in Latin America for hundreds of years, or thinks out of profiteering, the British in India or the Dutch in Indonesia, profiteering out of the gospel in some ways. But it leads him to a sense of transparency before God, and therefore he will persuade. And Christian mission is always about persuasion, because God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And so as it moves from Jewish culture to Greek culture to Roman culture to Persian culture to Mongol culture to Chinese culture to Indian cultures to African cultures to Native American cultures, it causes questions how do we now live? How do we think? How do we behave? And so with the gospel, Paul persuades. Not with a false conscience, not with a dirty conscience before God, but with a clean conscience between, before God and before men. 
I got a little wind of this when I visited two of our missionaries, Adrian and Rebecca, when they were working with an Islamic group a couple years ago in Asia. Adrian was showing me around the town, and we just had some spicy noodles in a really greasy hole-in-the-wall cafe. And we wandered into this mosque, and the imam, you know, I remember it was, it was a beautiful morning, and the imam came to greet us, had a fine beard, and after we had exchanged politenesses, Adrian began to persuade him about Christ. To be honest, I was a little bit taken aback. Here we were in this Muslim community, publicly. There weren't that many people around, but there are certainly people who could have heard our conversation. And Adrian was engaged with this leader about Christ. And yet, as I reflected on it, it didn't have that sense of coercion or manipulation. There was a ring of truth about it. There was something about his life and his wife's life that was transparent before God. They knew they'd been called for this purpose. Persuasion out of the fear of God. For we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ, for every careless word and every deed will go through the fire. He will examine the quality of each person's work. He calls those in Christ to persuade others. Well, the third motivation that Paul has is love. Verse 14 to 16. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us. That's, that's the theme for our missions week. Christ's love compels us. The English Standard Version uses the word controls us. Other translations, the translators for their different reasons, select other words, constrains us. It's a powerful word. Jesus Christ himself used it in Luke 12, verse 50. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How constrained, how pressed I am until it is accomplished. That he saw the vision and the vocation of his life being sent by the Father, born to die on a tree, that he was constrained until he had accomplished this death on a tree. And some will look at this passage and say, well, isn't it about my love for Christ rather than his life for me? And the commentators go back and forth about that. But I take primarily here that it is Christ's love for the believer that motivates them. And that quite possibly Paul does also mean that as a result of that, our love, the love of the believer, is motivated towards Christ. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we are convinced that one has died, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and lived, was raised again. There is, in a sense, a double binding. Christ, through his blood, has bound himself to his people. And his people, as they meditate, as they consider and ponder this wonderful love, bind themselves as with mighty cables of steel, one might say, bind themselves to Christ in devotion, in vocation, in worship for the rest of their lives. One hymn writer put it like this, 
Condemned in my place, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. The British pastor, John Stott, looking at the tree of death that became the tree of life, said that sin at its essence is man substituting himself for God. But salvation at its essence is God substituting himself for men, for men and women. Sin asserts itself against God, putting itself in the place where only God deserved to be. Salvation is God sacrificing himself, putting himself where only man or woman deserves to be. And so we see the tree of life, divine self-satisfaction, satisfying his justice and his mercy, satisfying his wrath and his love, dealing with the primary problem of the human race, which is rebellion against their maker, and the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of a holy, righteous, and perfect and infinite God. Dealing with that on the cross, divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. This is what motivated the Apostle Paul. And he said he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. It creates this fork in the road. One path leads to self-absorption, self-aggrandizement, perhaps loving others in order to receive love. On this path, a path of securing our own comfort, our own security, our own approval from others. It's all about us, all about you, all about me. And then on the other path, a path of emptying, of laying down, a path of sacrifice, a path of giving up our ambitions and dreams, a path of pleasing our Redeemer. This love of Christ that compelled Paul is so irresistible across cultures. It speaks to the human condition, regardless whether it's in the cities of North America or in the shanty towns of Latin America or in the rural areas of Asia, it speaks. A few weeks ago, I was walking on the Boston Common, practicing social distancing, but walking on the Boston Common with one of our missionaries, Damien Long. And as you may know, Damien and Grace had served for almost 15 years in Central Asia. And Damien told me of a young man who I think in many ways had tasted and seen something of this sacrificial life, love of Christ. He was a scrappy kid raised in a tough neighborhood. His father had walked out on the family early on. And so he was raised by a single mother and he looked up to his older brother. Both the mother and the brother worked for the equivalent of the KGB. He was constantly getting in fights and this kid showed up somehow in one of Damien's basketball camps and started to belong to their community. And on one occasion, Damien was leading the team through a, a session which they would put on little sticky notes, major events in their life, mapping out the trajectory of their experience. And then after they had mapped it out and looking for patterns or some sense of direction, Damien asked this kid, so 
What values do you see from mapping out your life? And he pointed to the stickies on the wall. He said, oh, patience, kindness. I guess, coach, God, God taught me love. He, it's about love, right, coach? It's all about love. Now, this, this young man had no background in scripture. He had been to church a few times, but nothing stuck. And Damien asked him to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he'd hardly finished the first verse, and he blurted out, Coach, you tricked me. You set me up. You made me focus on those words. And then you made me, you, you put it, you made me read that Bible verse. It's a complete setup. And Damien responded saying, You really think I crafted your life? That I put in place these values? That I was responsible for the scripture? And he relented, oh no, I, I, guess, I guess it's all God. And then he looked at the pink stickies. They had pink stickies around the wall where they'd written down the hard things in their life. He said, oh, now I see why they're pink. Because everything is made beautiful. God can make the suffering beautiful. He had grasped something of this self-sacrificial love of Christ in that context of ministry. Even a hardened kid from a poor neighborhood in an Islamic country, raised by a single mom, doing the best she could, working for the equivalent of the KGB. Even a person like that is moved by the love of Christ. Well, the love of Christ compelled Paul, and the love of Christ is what turned the ancient world upside down. It turned the Jews upside down, it turns the Greeks upside down, the Romans upside down, and as it spread through to the west, through Persia and the Silk Road, all the way through to Mongolia, and then as it spread in, in the Arab world and then through parts of Africa and later on to Europe, it's the love of Christ that turned the world upside down. And it's the love of Christ that is still has the electricity. It still has the chemistry today. We may not hear about it on MSNBC or through Fox News and the Wall Street Journal or in the Boston Globe or other newspapers and outlets, but God is in the world, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And it's this motivation, this impulse that undergirds Park Street Church as we prioritize our areas of mission of people who do not have Bibles in their own language, of Muslims in the Islamic communities around the world, of unreached peoples where there are very few Bibles, Christians, or churches, or international students, those who've come from countries where Christians are harassed and discriminated against, and it could even be illegal to be a Christian in their country, coming to Boston, and the ministries to engage with them, connect with them, equip them so that when they return, they are full of Christ, full of the Spirit, full of the good news. As we connect with the majority world in the global south, as the gospel continues to grow, and as we engage in our own city here in Boston, the love of Christ compels us out of love for him. But what about you? 
What about you this week? What about me? Where does this leave us? I think it leaves us in three different ways. First of all, to ask ourselves, to ask yourself, does the love of Christ compel me? Really? When I look at those of a different race or a different economic background, or when I look at those who are from a different political party, does the love of Christ compel me? Or is there anger or is there arrogance or indifference? Is the love of Christ really motivating us? Invite, I invite you this week to think about and to come before God to ask to check your motives. What is driving you? Is it the love of Christ? For what he has done for you, binding himself to you in our cultural moment, in our historic time, in our period of uncertainty right now as we move forward, the love of Christ speaks louder than anything. The second application is one of persuasion. Are we persuaded by the fear of God? What place does the fear of God have in your life? How accountable do you sense yourself to God? Or have you decided that you're quite fine, thank you very much, that you are okay, that everything is hunky-dory, that everything's fine, and yet the fear of God motivated Paul to draw near in worship and adoration, not to recoil, but to advance, to engage. And it was this accountability before God that led him to want to persuade others, not out of coercion, not out of manipulation, not out of shame, not out of guilt, but out of joy, in a sense, for his heavenly Father. He knew he was accountable for God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that he was part of this movement that began before he was born and continues, continued after he died. Who has God put in your life that you can connect with this week? Someone in your family, someone on the internet, someone you meet in the supermarket, someone you meet on the street. Who is God bringing you close to with questions of time and eternity, of suffering, of life and death, of prosperity and adversity? Who is it that God has planted you next to to be that salt and light, to be that aroma of Christ in their life, in their living room, in their Zoom room? Who is it that you can pour out yourself for in prayer and love and persuasion with integrity? The third application is about participation. Participate in our Global Missions Week. Jump in. We have an extraordinary opportunity before us this week own it. Invest in it yourself. Make it your own. Join us at one o'clock today as we learn about God's perspective on the world from a, a world expert on this area. Join us through the week. Hop on one of the fireside chats to meet with one of our missionaries, talk about what God is doing in their life. Get the opportunity to ask them questions. Register for one of our seminars next Saturday serving in the city perhaps through home ministry or city engagement ministries or learning about justice in the global south, learning about how you can use your professional skills, not just locally but globally, or how the opportunities God has brought before us to minister to international students who are away from home, away from their family here in Boston, or learn 
on Saturday afternoon how to be a part of a prayer movement, perhaps similar to the Faith Tabernacle Church in Philadelphia, a prayer movement of disciple-making in other parts of the world. And then as you prepare yourself for next Sunday, as we welcome Dr. Scott Sunquest, president of Gordon Theological Seminary, Gordon Conwell Seminary, to be our preacher, to call us to commitment, to give ourselves sacrificially, generously, financially for God's mission, to pledge ourselves to him, to grow more deeply, to be more informed in his world, to pray more intelligently and imaginatively, to serve, to give. Prepare your hearts. The love of Christ compels us. This narrative, this is the one that endures. This is the one that brings life. This is the one that changes cultures. This is the one that brings hope to communities. This is the one that is, begins with God, continues with God, and will be completed with God. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Will you join him in his work? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for all. You died for the richest person on earth. You died for the poorest person on earth. You died for the healthiest, for the sickest. You died for the most moral person on earth. You died for the most corrupt person on earth. You died for all. Thrill our hearts, we pray, with your love for the world, that you emptied yourself that we may have the righteousness of Christ before a holy God and help us to live lives of integrity, of joy, and of self-sacrifice that you may be glorified here in Boston and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.